good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. Invite you to turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7. We're going to read this morning Exodus 7, 14 through 25. Exodus 7, 14 through 25. Feels good to be preaching on more than two verses. I feel like I've been preaching on two verses lately. Exodus 7, verses 14 through 25 is our text today. And once you find that, I invite you to stand in honor of God's word. And as you're standing, I want to remind you that we believe these words were given by inspiration of God and are the only sufficient, certain, and authoritative rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Exodus chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Let's pray together. Lord, whom have we in heaven but you? To whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Therefore, we now come to your word, seeking these words of eternal life. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us a mind to understand, give us a heart to believe, give us a spirit to obey. Guide us with your counsel, O Lord. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. We arrive this morning at the beginning of the section of Exodus that concerns itself with the 10 plagues that the Lord sends on Egypt. In the mornings on the way to work, I listened to the chronological Bible and the Dwell Bible app, and I started this past week with Exodus 4 through 6, just by God's providence, that's where I was. And at some point in my drive, Gregory, who is my preferred Dwell Bible app reader, read Exodus chapter 5, verse 2 in which Pharaoh arrogantly responds to Yahweh with the following words. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. And after Gregory read that verse, I had to pause the app because I was so struck by the fact that everything that follows, all of these plagues that the Lord sends on Egypt, these five chapters that follow are a loud and resounding answer to Pharaoh's arrogant question. 
Almost as if we see here, and when Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? The Lord tells him through his actions. You don't know the Lord, you will know him. You'll know his power. You'll know his might intimately. You'll see with your eyes what his faithfulness means. You'll experience the wrath of his strong hand. And in this clash that we find ourselves embarking on today, this clash between Yahweh and the dark powers of Egypt, we're reminded over and over and over again of the power of God over the gods of Egypt. And I feel like when I say gods of Egypt, I should use air quotes. So just bear with me and believe that's what I'm doing in my heart every time I say it. The deceitfulness of sin that we find here in Pharaoh's heart the power of God, the faithfulness of God to execute judgment and to deliver his people, all of these things come to a culmination at the end of the plagues. And we just this morning get to start with the first one, this plague that the Lord sends on Egypt in which he turns the waters of the Nile to blood. Because in each of these plagues, what we see is that from beginning to end, Yahweh decidedly puts an end to the Egyptian God. He puts each Egyptian God or goddess that is represented in all of these plagues that he sends to open shame. He is shouting not only to Egypt and to Pharaoh and to Israel and to the children of Israel, but also to the entire world. And it's still shouting today that there is none like our God that he is not merely one God to be added to a pantheon, that he's not merely one among many who has equal powers, but there is one God and there is none like him. And that everything that sets itself up as a God that's not him is a perversion. It's not merely that they're, that they're just wrong or that they're just, that they're just misguided, but rather anything else that's set up as a God beside him is merely a perversion of the goodness that he is. And so he sends the plagues. Just as a way to remind you and prepare you for the next several weeks, these plagues are as follows. First, he turns the water in Egypt, the lifeblood of Egypt, into blood. Second, he sends frogs out of the Nile that, that infest every spot of Egypt. Third, he sends gnats as numerous as the dust. Fourth, He sends swarms of flies. Fifth, he uh, kills the Egyptian livestock. Sixth, he sends boils and sores on the bodies of the Egyptians. Seventh, he sends heavy hail over man, beast, and crop. Eighth, he sends locusts to consume all that the hail left. And ninth, he sends a complete lack of light. He takes away the light of the sun, which culminates in tenth, the death of the firstborn, what he had promised earlier in the book of Exodus. And each of these first nine follow an interesting pattern. And we'll see the beginning of this pattern today in chapter seven, verse 14. Each of these first nine follows a pattern of threes. You'll see first in this pattern of threes that Moses meets Pharaoh in the morning by the Nile with a command and a warning. The Lord sends Moses to Pharaoh by the banks of the Nile for the first plague, for the fourth plague, and for the seventh plague. He gives them a command, do this, let my people go and serve me. And if not, here's what's going to happen. Second, Pharaoh, after he refuses to relent, is given uh, another command and another warning. We see that in the second plague and in the fifth plague and in the eighth plague. And then third, in each of these uh, sections, the Lord merely does the plague. He doesn't tell Pharaoh he's going to do it. He just sends it. And so we find here in this first section of the first set of three, that the Lord turns the water into blood. And I want to just pause here as we, as we head off into the plagues and just, and just say very clearly that the Lord is actually sending these things and using natural means to accomplish his purposes. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is if you look at picture and video of the Nile River today, it is red, but it's not bloody. It's red because of sediment. It's red because of, maybe because of algae, but it's not bloody. When the Lord says, 
that he will, he will turn the water into blood. What that means is he turned the water into blood. Just want to make sure that we're all on the same page. And quite possibly, as we're looking at these, these plagues from beginning to end, from number one to number 10, many scholars believe that this wasn't just a few days or a few weeks or even a few months, but, but probably nine months, the better part of a year that it, Egypt is experiencing these plagues. And so when we look at this, I don't want you to see and think, well, this is just water that merely looks like blood or dust that merely looks and feels like gnats or darkness that isn't actually completely dark. It's just mostly dark. One commentator writes, the rescued people were not to think of God as one who strikes down into nature from the outside with strange and unwanted power, superseding utterly its familiar forces. They were to think of him as the author of all and of the common troubles of mortality as being indeed the effects of sin, yet ever controlled and governed by him, let loose at his will and capable of mounting to unimagined heights if his restraints be removed. The picture here is not of a world that is out of control. The picture here is of a God who is in control, who is judging a people for their sin. And this morning, I want us to examine God's first answer to Pharaoh's question, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And this first answer is in turning the water of the Nile and really all of the water of Egypt into blood. Because it's as if these plagues are shouting, no, that's, that's not your river, Pharaoh, that's my river. These are my frogs, my gnats, my flies, my locusts, my sun, my skies. And so we turn our attention to the text in verse 14. And the first word that we see is the word then. Well, if we look back at what happens in the, in the section before, as Lawson uh, spoke to us last Sunday, what we understand is that this instance, this story, starting in verse 14, going all the way to verse 25, happens right on the heels of God's first showing of his power to Pharaoh. If you look back up at chapter 7, you remember that God sent Aaron and Moses to Pharaoh's court, and they're standing before him, and the sign that they're given is that Aaron can drop his, his staff onto the ground, and it turns into a serpent. And the magicians say, well, we can do that too. And so they do it as well. The problem is that Pharaoh's magicians, though they did the same thing, Aaron's staff swallowed up the serpents from the magician's staffs. I just want to point out that when I was typing this yesterday, Google Docs put that little blue squiggly line under there and said, this sentence doesn't make sense. And it's because it doesn't, right? Because God in his, in his sovereignty and in his power has the staff of Aaron to devour the staffs of the magicians. And, and it, it is full of foreshadowing. This instance in the life of Pharaoh shouts to him that there is a day coming when you will be devoured by this God because of your sin. That it, it, unless you repent, there is not a happy future for you. You see your magician's staffs being eaten by, a, by one staff that should be assigned to you. That this does not end well for you. There's, there is deep foreshadowing here, but Pharaoh ignores it. Pharaoh does not believe and his heart is still hardened. And so if you're taking notes this morning, my, I see today's sermon in two major sections with three subsections each. That helps. Two major sections with three subsections each. First, we will look at the story, I think, in three movements. And then second, we'll make three observations about uh, what we find here in the story. And so let's look first at the story in movement one. Movement number one in the story is that Yahweh gives instructions to Moses and Aaron. Look back at verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Now, I appreciate this, that we have this from Moses and from ultimately from the wisdom of the Lord. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Why this plague? It's not as if God is out of control or God forbid that we would think that he, he is is just in a fit of rage, but rather he says very clearly, why is this plague coming? Because Pharaoh's heart is hardened and he will not let the people go. He will not be obedient. 
And so the Lord gives instructions in verse 15. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. The instructions begin here. And he says, in the morning, which is a pattern for the first, fourth, and seventh uh, plague, he says, in the morning, I want you to go out to the Nile and meet Pharaoh as he is going to the Nile. Now, scholars throughout Christian history have have questioned why Pharaoh went to the Nile. Some would say that he just merely went there for his morning habit. That's uh, typically what we would see even in chapter two as the daughter of Pharaoh goes to the Nile. She's just going to the Nile. It's what she does in the morning. Some people say it's a religious observance. It's a way to, to basically worship the gods of the Nile, so to go out and have a, a religious sacrifice or religious observance. Others say it's an opportunity to check the water level because at this time, most scholars believe that this was the time that the, the river would be beginning to rise so that it would flow out of its banks into the land, thus making the land fertile for crops. And so he was just doing his daily check to see where the river level is. Whatever it is, the bottom line is that this section reminds us of the Nile and its centrality in Egyptian culture. He says, go out to the Nile. That's where he'll be. He's not somewhere else. He's not at some other monument. He's not at some other place. He's not in his palace. The Nile is central to this Egyptian culture. Egypt is literally impossible without the Nile. I feel like the only thing I remember from geography class is that civilizations built up around water. Everybody with me? And we could say that's true, right? This, the city of Memphis and this area built up because there's water. But even more so, when you think about the Nile, the, the way that the Nile worked, the land around the Nile, if it weren't for the overflowing banks of the Nile, it would merely be the desert. Egypt is nothing without the Nile River. And so he tells him, he says, go meet Pharaoh by the bank of the Nile. Similar language to what we find in chapter two, when Moses is drawn out of the Nile by Pharaoh's daughter. And he says, Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And I find this phrase to be hilarious. As if, and I think it's just a reminder that the Lord is victorious over Pharaoh. He says, if you're wondering which staff to take, take the one that ate all the other serpents. If you're looking in your closet for your staffs, pick the one that I gave you, that ate the serpents. Just as a reminder, that staff ate all of the other serpents. It's a symbol of God's power. He says, go to the Nile and take your staff with you. And what's he say in verse 16? And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. Just, just note, it shall turn into blood. That's not some bad English translation. That's just true. It shall turn into blood. Not look like it, not just smell like it, but be blood. Verse 18, the fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals and their ponds and all their pools of water so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. The first thing that the Lord says to tell to Pharaoh is a reminder of who he is. He says in verse 16, the Lord Yahweh, I am who I am, the God of the Hebrews, the God who is faithful to those who you are enslaving, sent me to you to say this. And he continues with a warning for Pharaoh's continual refusal to let the people go. And he says this, if you do not let the people go, the Nile River, your lifeblood, the thing that is keeping you on the map will turn into blood. The fish will die. The water will stink because it won't be water anymore. The people will be weary. And not only that, and I think this is a misnomer. We, we tend to talk about this in, in the sense that the Lord turned the Nile into blood. But what does he say in verse 19? It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt. 
all the waters, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, their pools of water, so that they may become blood and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. All the containers that once held water, open them up and they will contain blood. It's not merely the Nile, not merely its tributaries, but every part of their water in every container, whether natural container or built container, is filled with blood. Calvin writes, there was a reason for commencing with this miracle that the Egyptians might know that there was no safeguard for them in the resources upon which they prided themselves the most. We know what great wealth, defense, and conveniences arose to them from the Nile. Thence came their abundant fisheries, thence the fertility of their whole country, which is irrigated in its inundation, a thing that in other lands is injurious. Its navigation was most advantageous for their merchants. It was also a strong fortification to a good part of the kingdom. Therefore, in order to cast down the Egyptians from their principal dependence, he turns its waters into blood." He says, this is what you're going to tell Pharaoh. Anything that is water is going to be blood. To shout to them that all that you, that you find to be a comfort to you. I mean, imagine the comfort merely of going to a vessel of water and getting a cup out to drink. The comfort of knowing that we have the river and thus our trade will always be possible. The comfort of knowing that the river will, the river will over, overflow and so our crops will always be plentiful. All of these comforts. And the Lord says to Moses and Aaron, tell Pharaoh that in a moment they're gone. So we see in this first Movement. Yahweh gives the instructions to Moses and to Aaron, but we see in a second movement, number two, that Moses and Aaron obey Yahweh's instructions. And Yahweh, surprisingly, except not, does what he said he would do. Look at verse 20. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all, see that? And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. And I want you to, as we read that, I want you to think about the scene that's been set up. I want you to think about what is happening in this moment. Moses and Aaron walk down to the Nile and they meet Pharaoh. And, and we can, in our, in our minds, imagine that Pharaoh is just standing there by himself, but that's probably not the reality, right? Our own precedents don't go anywhere by themselves. Imagine the most powerful man in the universe, this, yeah, the man, the most powerful man in the universe, standing by the Nile River, and he is probably, we could assume, attended by any number of people. You've, you've seen the Prince of Egypt, right? You know that, that you have this, this picture of, of this man who is being fanned and who's being uh, attended to. We already know from Genesis that the, the pharaohs had people who were their cupbearers and people who baked for them. And, and we, we know he had any number of servants to care for his every need. And you see him here and he's being attended by all of these people. And who walks up? Two 80-something-year-old men with a staff. Seriously, like you think about the, the clash here. But isn't this beautiful? Because you have a nine foot giant and who walks up but this one guy with a slingshot? Because you have any number of stories in, in the Old Testament where you have huge armies and you have a couple of guys with something and the Lord. And what we see here in this clash is we see two men, Israelite men, who have been shepherds, the lowest of the low to the people of Egypt in their 80s, and they walk up with a single staff to the most powerful man on the planet, and they say, the Lord says to you, since you haven't let his people go, the water in the Nile is going to become blood. And you see in this clash, and we've, we talked about it last week, the beauty here of the fact that the Lord delights in using the ignorance 
and, and using the ignorance of his people to shame the wise of the world and using what is weak to shame the strong. And these two men walk up to Pharaoh. And in this moment, two men, Moses and Aaron, stand against the most powerful man on the planet, but the God of the universe stands against the supposed gods of Egypt. And he gives the plague. And he says, all the water in all of the containers, whether it be the river or the lakes, the ponds or the bowls, turns into blood. You just imagine the juxtaposition there. That in one moment, he, he puts his staff over the water and it all turns to blood. And the fish die. And it stinks. And there's nothing to drink. And there's nothing to bathe with. There's nothing to clean things with. And it says there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. And I really struggle to even put into words how destructive this is for them. And you think of the national destruction that happens when the fact that you, you exist as a nation because of this river and the river is no longer there. And much worse, it's not that the water is just all gone and dried up, but rather the water is turned to something that altogether is unhelpful to you. The national destruction of the fact that all of the water turned into blood. Think about the food destruction in the sense that all of the fish, something that actually, if, you, if we look over into later parts of the Old Testament, the Israelites complain that they can't have the fish that they had in Egypt. So seemingly fish was, was very important to the Egyptian diet. And they're out here looking at the river and fish are coming up. They're, they're beginning to float because they're dying. And sure, they could grab them, but what would they wash them with? They also depend on the water to irrigate their crops. I don't know that any studies have ever been done or could ever be done to, to tell you what blood does to crops, but I assume it's not good. You think about the economic destruction, that if there are no fish to trade, that if there are no crops, think about the environmental destruction of the fact that there is literally blood everywhere, that everywhere you go, all you see is blood. All you smell is blood. All you see is the remnants of water that used to be blood. You think of the personal destruction. That there is no way, you cannot boil blood long enough and it turn into water. You cannot clean blood well enough and it turn into water. You have people dying because they do not have water. And we, we read just this simple phrase. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but imagine being this Egyptian person who wakes up that morning. Maybe they slept in and they go to the, the basin of water that they have in their home and it's not water, it's blood. And they go outside and the water that was irrigating their crops is now red and thick and smells awful. And maybe they end up at the river and they go to look at the river and all they see on top of the river is dead fish. And you ask the question, well, isn't, isn't this a little harsh? No. And what I would even venture to say is that this is just the first of 10. Because sin is such an affront to God that he, in His holiness, it is such an opposite of him that this pales in comparison to the wrath that is due even one sin. But you look at this verse and what we find is that what had always been the lifeblood of Egypt, what had always been the, the thing that kept Egypt alive has become an instrument of death and destruction. John MacArthur writes, the Egyptians depended upon the floodwaters of the Nile to irrigate their country. During late June and July and August, the Nile River rises above its banks, completely inundates the land, spreading way inland, and turns the desert into a place where things will grow, leaving pools of water everywhere and a very natural irrigation. 
The river, they say, is the lowest in May and the highest in August. And were it not for the inundation of the Nile River, Egypt would be as bleak a place as the Sahara Desert. They were absolutely dependent on the Nile. And the Nile is gone. And I'm building this up for you because you would expect that anyone, in my opinion, in their right mind would see this, would see these two men with with a staff come and turn every drop of water into blood and the response might be penitence. It might be, okay, you're right. I'm sorry, I'm wrong. God, the God, Yahweh is the true God. There's none like him, but what does Pharaoh do? If you're taking notes, movement number three, look at verse 22. What does Pharaoh do? It says, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. I love how Moses records this because he doesn't give it any time at all. Almost to say, it's just a petty imitation. Because the reality is they had to find water somewhere. Verse 24 and 25 tell us that, they, that the people began to dig along the Nile under the ground to find water and they found some water. And so they turn a little bit of water, I would assume just a small amount into blood. Congratulations. What has the Lord already done? He's turned all of the water into blood. But it's enough for Pharaoh. This petty imitation is enough for Pharaoh. And it says in verse 22, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house and he did not take this even to heart. Verse 24 goes on to say that they dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. They're digging for water to find something to drink. Seven days of the stink, of the dead fish, of nothing but blood. And notice what Moses says. You might miss it if you read it quickly. Verse 25, seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. The Lord uses the means of Moses and Aaron, but he gets the credit. Pharaoh responds, not in humility, not in penitence, not in repentance, but rather the scripture actually says he turns away. Verse 23, Pharaoh turned and went into his house. He sees, he sees the destruction of his land the death of his people. He smells the stench of blood that goes up throughout the entire country. He turns around and he walks into his palace. Verse 22, his heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them. Now we we find this story And we know the particulars of this story, but I do want to point out now with the rest of our time, three observations that I think we pick up in this story. Three observations that I hope will make clear that this clash between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt is shouting that there is no one like our God. And not only is there no one like our God, but that there is always in the scriptures a sort of duality about blood. And so we'll look there for the rest of our time. First, if you're taking notes, the first part of the second half is I want us to see the deceitfulness of sin. Look back at verse 14. See the deceitfulness of sin. Look at verse 14. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Now this is fascinating to me. The word here for hardened is not the same word used in verse 13. So if you look at verse 13, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. It's also not the same word for hardened that we see in verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. It's different words. It's completely different words altogether. And the question is, why would Moses used a different word here than he uses for the other places. We've heard, we know about hardening and, and Pharaoh's hardening from earlier texts, and we'll see it in later texts that, that it means that he's obstinate, that he is impenitent, that we know that he is hard-hearted, that he will not repent, that he refuses to repent, that even though the Lord would show him all of these miraculous deeds, we know that by the end, he still will not repent. But this word is different. It doesn't mean hard or obstinate like these other words mean. What it means is heavy. 
It says, quite literally, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is heavy. You might be like, why does this matter? Well, I just nerded out about this for like an hour yesterday, so I'll tell you. It matters because in the Egyptian system of religion, what was assumed happened when you went down to the underworld to Osiris to be judged for your life, that they would put a feather of righteousness, righteousness that weighs a feather on one side of a scale, and they'd put you and your soul on the other side. And Moses here seems to be arguing and borrowing from Egyptian belief and understanding of the world to say Pharaoh up against the feather of righteousness is heavy. That he is, he is unrighteous altogether. That he is altogether evil and against righteousness and against God. And he says to Moses, the Lord or Pharaoh's heart is heavy. And we still have as well in this passage and in the passage before it, that not only is his heart heavy, that not only is he altogether unrighteous, but he is impenitent. He is obstinate. That literally in verse 22, it says that his heart grew hard or grew strong. Grew strong in what? In opposition to God. In opposition to the one true God who is shouting his existence at him. Pharaoh has a heavy heart, a hard-hearted heart. But not only that, Pharaoh refuses to listen. Look at verse 14. And then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go, even after the warning of God in chapter 4, verse 22, which says this, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Even after a clear warning like that. Even after the clear sign of God. In chapter 7, verse 12, for each man cast down his staff and they became serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Even after the lackluster response of his magicians. I mean, I love how Moses points out how petty their, their try at this was in this verse 22, and it says they did the same. Not impressive. God had already turned all the water in Egypt into blood. They had to dig for some water put it in a vessel that had blood in it. They had to dump out the blood and put water in it and then say, look, we can turn this water into blood. If they were really impressive, what would they have done? They would have turned it back. If they had the power that they claimed to have, if they had the power that Pharaoh seemingly believes that they had, they would just have turned it back to water. But they couldn't. And Moses says they do it by their, quote, secret arts. The language seemingly pointing out that this, this might not even be real. That they might be those who could turn water into red water or could turn water into stinky water. But even if they could, even if they did turn it into blood, they turned a little bit of water into blood. And even after this lackluster response of his magicians, Pharaoh refuses to listen. He refuses to believe. Verse 22 says, But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. But I think it goes even deeper than this because Pharaoh also moves into a purposeful obstinacy, a, a purposeful refusal to obey. Look at verse 16. I love, I love the assumption of verse 16. When the Lord says to Moses and Aaron to say this to Pharaoh, he says, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness, but so far you, Pharaoh, have not obeyed. I love the assumption. What's the assumption of of this verse. The assumption of this verse is that the Lord's voice is worthy of being obeyed. And this is foreign to Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh has this understanding of the world that is, is, is not one God and a bunch of counterfeits. It's, well, there's a bunch of gods and there's a pantheon of gods and they're all over the place. And, and the Lord says to Pharaoh, no, 
The assumption here is that my voice is the one worthy of being obeyed and you are not obeying it, which is ridiculous because even the skies obey it. They've created a multitude of counterfeit gods to explain what the one God does. And then when that God is speaking to him in his purposeful obstinacy and recalcitrance, he says, I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to obey. How do we know this? Because verse 23, it says, Pharaoh turned and went into his house. He turns his back on what the Lord has done. But the problem is he can't, he can't neglect it because his palace isn't exempt. His water is all blood. This signals the pride in his own heart. He has believed the counterfeit. He set himself up as a God, as a mediator between the gods of Egypt and the people of Egypt. He has drunk in the power of his position and he sees himself as higher even than his creator. And I think this is a moment here where we can pause and we can say sin is deceitful. I'm not going to sit here and put us as believers in Christ into the category of Pharaoh. We've been redeemed from that. But Hebrews does tell us that it is true that sin is deceitful. Hebrews 3, the writer of Hebrews writes in verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Pharaoh did not begin by ignoring the clear voice of God through Moses and Aaron. In the deceitfulness of his heart, he began, I would assume, like many of us began in pride, thinking that he was the most important person in the world at about two years old. He began in much the same way as anyone else. And over and over and over again, he believed the lie of sin. Over and over and over again, he believed that he was in control, that he was the the center of the universe. Spurgeon said, sin will also flatter a man with the notion that he can go just so far and no farther and retreat with ease. He can tread the verge of crime and yet be innocent. Another person would be in great danger, but this self-satisfied fool thinks that he has such power over himself, that he is so intelligent and so experienced that he can stop at a safe point. And Pharaoh turns away. But the reality is that this is just the next step in a long staircase down to his destruction. He turns away here. And he turns away when it's gnats and when it's flies and when it's frogs and when it's darkness and even when it's his own son. He turns away into destruction. Sin is deceitful. But sin is a terrible master. And we see here first the deceitfulness of sin, but we also see gloriously, second, the character of Yahweh himself. And I really don't even know how to, how to call this. I just, in my notes, called it his godness first. Because the character of Yahweh that we see here first is that he is God. Look at verse 16. What does he say to Pharaoh? The first thing he says, I want you to tell Pharaoh is, and you shall say to him, the Lord. I am who I am. I who am always the same, who, who have always been the same from beginning to end, who has no beginning and no end. I am the Lord. And say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, the God who has shown faithfulness to generation after generation. He says, tell him that the Lord, the sovereign one, the faithful one, the one who is the covenant-keeping God, the one who always is, the one who does not need another to, to be existing, but rather all things get their existence from him. He said, tell the Lord, or tell him that the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you. He is who he is. He is God, and there is none other. But not only that, look at the assumption of verse 16. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. What's the assumption? The assumption is that he is worthy of worship. 
Why, is, why are they supposed to leave Egypt but to serve the Lord? And it's, he doesn't mean here like to wait tables or to, to serve in that sense. What he means is to worship him, to offer sacrifices of worship. He says, let my people go into the wilderness that they might worship me. He alone is worthy of worship. And he alone, verse 16, is to be obeyed, as we spoke of earlier. The assumption when he says, so far you have not obeyed, is that he is worthy of obedience. And why does this matter? It's, it's because there seemed to be in ancient Egypt a casual belief that if there was, quote unquote, another God discovered or a different permutation of a God, that most people in this culture would be what we might call tolerant toward that God. That most people in this culture would say, oh, another one? Awesome. We'll just lump him, him or her in with, with the ones we've already got. They were willing to acknowledge a God and add him or her to the pantheon of gods that they already worshiped. What Egyptians were unwilling to do, and what we find in Egyptian history is there is a king who does exactly this. What, what Egyptians in the ancient world were unwilling to do was to find a God who claimed sole godhood and worship him alone. There's a Pharaoh in the history of ancient Egypt who does this. And the belief that this one God that he believed in birthed all the other gods died when he died. Because the, the ancient, ancient Egyptians were fine with adding one more God to their group of gods. What they were not okay with was saying that there is one God who is the sole God, and that's exactly what Yahweh is doing. And it's exactly what he's done for all of history. He calls out Abraham and he says, he says I'm God. You belong to me. We see it even in what Paul says in Acts chapter 17, one of my favorite passages of scripture, Paul says in Acts 17, verse 22, it says, so Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by my man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation and mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul says to the people at Mars Hill, he says, he says, you're looking for all of these gods, but there's one. And I can tell you about him. He made you. He holds the world together in his hands. And this clash in Egypt, same as the clash that we see in, in the Areopagus at Mars Hill, this clash is so prominently dis displayed in Egypt to shout not only to the Egyptians, but to the Israelites and to all of the world for all of time that he is not one among many, that he is not one to be added to the rest of, of the pantheon of gods, but that he is the God among a myriad perversions, that he is the God among a myriad perversions. And Paul says it to the people at Mars Hill, and we, we hear it said here in Exodus chapter seven, that there is not a multiplicity of true gods, that there is one. And in his godness, there is none like him. There is none other who could ever come close to comparing. But not only do we see it in his godness here in, in chapter seven, we see it in his omnipotence. What happens in chapter 7? Like if we could just pause and think deeply about what happens here, I think it reminds us of his omnipotence. What happens? First, we see that he has power over even the elements. He can turn water into something else. He turns water into blood. Not only do we see his omnipotence in his power of the elements, but we see it in his power over the supposed gods of Egypt. In Egyptian mythology, there were at least five gods, supposed gods, related to the Nile. You have Kunim, who is the god of the Nile source, who was married to Satet, probably saying these wrong, the goddess of the Niles, but they're fake, so it doesn't matter. Satet, the goddess of the Niles flooding. 
And together they had two children, uh, Anukit, who is the goddess of the Nile, and Hapi, which is the god of the Nile's flooding. Again, it said that was a good thing. And then you have Osiris, one of the most famous of the Egyptian gods, who was said to have the Nile as his bloodstream. Now, I love this. Because what's the picture? If the Nile is Osiris' bloodstream, then the picture here that the Lord is shouting over the people of Egypt is that Osiris is bleeding to death. He is not God. He cannot control even his own blood. God proves omnipotent over at least five supposed gods of Egypt. This isn't merely about showing his power over the waters themselves. It's about showing his power himself greater than the Egyptian gods. Osiris is bleeding to death and there is nothing that the magicians of Egypt can do to reverse it. But not only that, just in the little phrases in this text, we, we see God's power. If you look at verse 22, this little phrase in verse 22, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them. What's it say? As the Lord had said. Absolute omniscience and sovereignty over history. When did he say that? He said it in verse four. Pharaoh will not listen to you. <laughs> And guess what? Pharaoh didn't listen. And not only will he not listen to you now, but he won't listen to you after all of these things. And the Lord, as a sign of this power, has given Moses and Aaron his staff. I can only imagine that as as Moses and Aaron walk up with the staff again, Pharaoh sees the staff and he sees his destruction in it. He sees the staff and knows that he will be defeated. Gill writes, as a terror to Pharaoh on sight of which he might be put in mind of what had been done and by means of which he might fear other wonders would be wrought. He sees the staff. And we know this staff goes on. And it, not only do they defeat by the power of God in, the, in this staff, not only do they defeat all the gods of Egypt, but they then conquer all of Canaan. This staff is a symbol in the text of God's power, not only over the elements, but over the supposed gods of this evil nation. And what I love, because I love words, is that this word that we talked about in verse 14, that Pharaoh's heart is hardened or heavy, it's the same word that we find throughout the plagues that is used, that Moses uses to describe the heaviness of the plagues on Egypt. He says, this is what your heaviness earns. In, verse, in chapter 8, verse 24, it earns its heavy swarms of flies. In chapter 9, verse 3, it's heavy plague. Chapter 9, verses 18 and 24, it's heavy hail. In chapter 10, verse 14, it's heavy swarms of locusts. That this heavy man, his judgment is heavy plague. And interestingly enough, if you look at chapter 12, verse 38, it's the same word used to speak of the heavy amount of livestock that the Israelites carry out of Egypt. Our God is omnipotent. There is no way to even describe the level of power that he has. But that's not all that we see about God here. In the character of God, we see, third, his justice He asked the question, as we think about any literature, but especially the the words of God to us, why blood? Why the Nile? Anytime one action is done, it's always done at the expense of a myriad other actions. So why blood? Why the Nile? Why Egypt? Why, Why does he turn the water into blood and not into something else? Why does he turn the Nile into blood and not something else into blood? I would submit to you that this plague is in and of itself an act of judgment for the way that the Egyptians had polluted the Nile with the blood of Israelite infants. Look at chapter 1, verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. You shall let every daughter live. 
Don't you think that was crossing Pharaoh's mind when he looked out on the Nile and all he saw was blood? Don't you think that what crossed his mind is all of the infants that he had used the Nile to destroy? That all of the infants that he had commanded, and it wasn't him, it was his forebears, but that they as a people had commanded to be cast into the Nile. One commentator writes, the Nile had been made the instrument of destruction to the Israelites by the first tyrannical Pharaoh. It had been defiled with the blood of thousands of innocent victims. And what we see in this turning of the Nile into blood is a loud reminder that no sin, no sin will escape the justice of God. That no sin will escape the justice of God. That this this blood in the Nile is shouting at them that, that there is a recompense for sin. That all sin, all evil will be dealt with. Whether it's dealt with on the cross of Jesus Christ or in the last day in the, in the judgment of those who are apart from him, all sin will be dealt with. There is no sin that will go unpunished. Either Christ drank it at the cross or those apart from him will suffer for all of eternity. And I think this is just a, a moment that I think I would be it would be inappropriate for me to pass up the opportunity to say that our God, our God is committed to life. That this is, is merely a picture of the evil atrocities that have been done toward the unborn in our day. That in this sense, we see babies thrown into the water for the sake of one man's ego and fear. And we have seen throughout the last 50 years and beyond, unspeakable amounts of children die for much the same reason. No sin will escape the justice of God. But we also see here, not merely His justice, but we see His mercy. What is this act? What are the plagues doing? Of course, the plagues are announcing to Pharaoh to Egypt and to all the world that there is one God and that his name is Yahweh. But the plagues are also doing something else. They're providing mercy for the children of Israel. That this is merely the first step of 10 steps that that brings about by the power of God, the deliverance of the people of Israel. What does chapter six, verse one say? But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh for with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. The Lord is working salvation. The Lord is working mercy for his people. Mercy and judgment are always intermingled. Look at, uh, if you even think back to Genesis chapter 15, 14, when God is promising to Abraham what he'll do, he says, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, Egypt, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. That mercy and judgment are always intermingled. What does, what does the Lord say about himself in Exodus chapter 34 other than the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Mercy and judgment are always intermingled. Judgment on Pharaoh and the Egyptians meant mercy for the children of Israel. And if you put all of those things together about the, the character of God, we find these things perfectly clear in the cross of Christ. Christ claimed to be Yahweh himself. His godness was apparent. He said, I and the Father are one in John 10. His repetition of that, of that Greek configuration, ego eimi, is a, is a reminder that he is indeed Yahweh. Not only that, his omnipotence, he claimed power, not merely over life, but over death. For this reason, John 10, 17, and 18, 
The Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. What does he say about those sheep that are his? That no one will snatch them out of his hand. And in the cross of Christ, justice and mercy meet in a way that never happened before because he was condemned that we might receive mercy. Peter writes, he himself bore our sins and his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. That a object in his death that was, was meant for him just judgment for him became mercy for us, became grace to us. And we see here in the water being turned into blood, just a shadow, a shadow of the fact that what God worked for judgment for the Egyptians turns out for the good of the Israelites. And I want to turn to that as we close. Third, third observation, I want you to see the meaning of blood. Why blood? We sang this morning, and I looked around. People were smiling. We sang the words, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. But that first line, there is a fountain filled with blood. There was a fountain, lots of fountains, a river, lakes, all kinds of of vessels filled with blood in Exodus chapter 7. And no one, I don't think, in Egypt was smiling about it. Why blood? I think blood, unlike anything else throughout the Scriptures, is a sign at the same time of both judgment and mercy, judgment and grace. That throughout the Scriptures, what we see is that when judgment and mercy go in hand in hand, it is in the concept of blood. All the way back to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, after Adam and Eve have sinned, they've rebelled against God, they have, they have broken fellowship with him, he takes their fig leaves, and instead of making them walk out of the garden in fig leaves, it says in, in chapter 3, verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. That mercy toward Adam and Eve was at the expense of judgment or of the blood, death, of some animal. In the Levitical system, Leviticus 17.11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life, that every year on the day of atonement, the reminder would be that my sins, in order to be forgiven of my sins, something had to die. Something had to, to die in, in order for me to be forgiven. That judgment and mercy always go hand in hand in the sense of blood, that the blood pronounces judgment on one and mercy on the other. And we find that most truly and most clearly in a passage that I think we've been coming back to for the past month, and it, it's not getting old and it won't get old. In Hebrews chapter 12, let's, let's see what Hebrews says in verse 18, chapter 12. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the, into innumerable angels and festal, festal gathering, into the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, into God, the judge of all the earth, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. There is a fountain filled with blood. And the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of the Nile. Because all that the blood of the Nile said to the guilty party is judgment. 
All that the blood of the Nile said to the guilty party is that you deserve all of God's wrath for your sin and all that you have is judgment. It's better than the blood of the Nile. It's better than the blood of Abel, which cries out vengeance on the sinner because the blood of Christ speaks grace and mercy to the sinner because of the blood that was shed for him, that, that he, received, he received what we deserve so that we could receive what he deserved. The blood of Christ speaks grace and mercy in life because he took the judgment that we deserved. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 1 Peter 1.18.19, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Hebrews 9.22, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 13.12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. How can we look at a bunch of blood and seeing with joy that there is a fountain filled with blood. It's because his blood means mercy and grace flows toward us because the judgment for our sin flowed toward him. There is a fountain filled with blood and everything that it covers, turns it turns white as snow. And even in this shadow, in the book of Exodus, in chapter 7, as the blood is covering everything, and it is a reminder to Pharaoh and all of his people that it is judgment toward them from the one true God. It is, it is shouting to us that there is blood that covers us, not because of how good we are or how good we could be, but rather because of the grace that God bestowed on us in Christ. And as I close, I, would, I was struck by something this week and I, I read it and I was like, no way that's real. And then I read a lot of other people said it and I was, I was taken aback. That throughout history, the Christian history, people have, have seen a juxtaposition between the first plague here in Exodus and the first miracle that Jesus performs. Because in the first plague of Exodus, the water is turned to something that cannot be used. It does not house fish. It does not uh, help you when you're thirsty. It does not give you uh, any goodness that water could not give you. It makes things worse. That the Lord turned water into blood as a sign of judgment, as a reminder that for the sinner, when placed up against the law of God and you are seen as lacking, there is only judgment for you. But Christ comes, and in the first part of the book of John, he takes water and he turns it into wine, marking that for the sinner in this new covenant, it's not merely that there is wrath left for you, but in the new covenant of his blood, there is grace and joy. Pink says, all that the law can do to its guilty transgressor is to sentence him to death. And this is what the water turned into blood symbolized. But by the incarnate word, the believing sinner is made to rejoice. And this is what the turning of the water into wine speaks of. Because we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel and the blood of the Nile, to the blood that speaks of life and grace and joy forevermore, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.